Shalom and welcome back to another episode of Ezra International's It's All About the Aliyah. As I've been telling you, for over 25 years now, Ezra International has been helping the poorest of the poor, Jewish people, make it home to the land of Israel, the land of their biblical destiny. Hi, I'm your host, Gary Christofaro, and today we're going to be talking about the challenges on the ground that we face in the Aliyah. You know, the Aliyah process is a very practical one. There are many things, many services we provide that don't look like miracles, but they truly are part of the greater picture of God regathering His children back to the land of Israel. But first, a reminder of why some of these challenges may exist. I'm going to talk to you from the book of Deuteronomy, the curses that God uh, instructed Moses to convey to the people based on their ability to be obedient or the fact that they would be disobedient. And when they were disobedient, Deuteronomy 28, verse 64 says this, Then the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other, and there you will serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place, but the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. Now, does that mean that God was going to give the Jewish people a bunch of emotional problems uh, for the rest of their lives? No, I don't believe it means that at all. What I do believe it means is that the, the conditions on the ground where in the countries that they will be scattered to will cause them to never find that complete peace and rest that they would have when they're in the land of Israel, the land where God promised would, that it would be theirs eternally. Now, I've covered in previous episodes uh, things that have happened in the Holocaust and in the Inquisition, um, but it doesn't even have to be events that dramatic or tragic to cause the, the, uh, the nest to get prickly, so to speak, for the, those Jewish people in the nations. Uh, every country where Jewish people have lived, there has been a degree of comfort but inevitably, something will come along that causes uh, you know, causes persecution, uh, and sometimes a lot worse. Something that will will come along that that cause them to realize that um, they they need to 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 go to leave. And sometimes that means going into other countries uh, before they ever make it back to the nation of Israel. But eventually. And I'm talking about sometimes over generations, eventually they make their way back to the land because God promised that's what would happen. Uh, but first, uh, you know, the, the challenges that we face are uh, not uncommon to, to some uh, other organizations, uh, but many, many are unique to the Aliyah. What I mean by that is, you know, we're an international organization. So, of course, long before COVID brought the Zoom craze, you know, where everybody's communicating through Zoom, we were communicating through Skype and through phone calls because, face it, we're in, in uh, many nations of the world. And uh, we, we, we don't have big city offices. We, we work in our homes and we communicate from our homes from, uh, from places uh, all around the world. And so that in itself has been challenging, but we've done it for over 25 years. We have communicated and been able to coordinate the efforts on the ground. And we meet, we, uh, we meet weekly, 
in a prayer call. And it's those prayer calls that, that really triggered this episode in my mind because we, we talk about the, the things that are going on and we talk about prayer points. Uh, I send out weekly prayer points uh, in emails and we talk about the things that are happening on the ground and we pray about it. And we and we search, uh, we seek uh, God for uh, guidance and and for solutions, and uh, they're often and, and most often found uh, when we when we put the work, you know, go to the practical work. But when you know making these episodes, these things uh, come to mind, and I wanted to talk to you about them. Uh, the challenges uh, that that we face often are um, part of the push factors that I spoke to you about. If, you, if you're a regular um, viewer of this program, you know what I'm talking about. There's a, a pull factor that I've spoken of and a push factor that, that makes Jewish people go home to Israel. The pull factor is simply that, that homing pigeon spirit that awakens within them at some time during their lifetime. Uh, God will, will speak to their hearts, to their minds, and they realize that to really fulfill their, their destiny as a Jewish person, they want to, they belong in the land of Israel. They want to go there. And that's, that's what I call the, the pull. Uh, but the push factors are something different. And they are often situations like war, anti-Semitism, poverty, uh, even this COVID pandemic. These things will come along and cause a, a Jewish person to be less comfortable in the country that they're in. And, uh, and that can be an understatement sometimes, but they, they end up going to Israel. And we'll talk a little bit more about that later. But uh, let's talk about first civil unrest. Civil unrest, this one is uh, near and dear to my heart because I've actually witnessed this firsthand uh, in Ukraine. Uh, starting in 2014, I was there on a visit and uh, we, were, we were actually having meetings with our representatives. And what I witnessed on Krushatik Street was, was remarkable, was, was uh, unprecedented, at least in my lifetime. Um, this, uh, first, let me tell you what Krushatik Street is. It's, a, it's a, a very wide, it was widened after World War II, very wide street. It's a, it's a tourist attraction, really. If you're going to Ukraine, you have to see it. Very wide street with cafes, with uh, with shops, uh, with with places, with squares, open squares. Um, it's a beautiful uh, portion of the city of Kiev, and it's the buildings are are they've all been rebuilt after World War II. World War II, it was destroyed. In fact, uh, when the Red Army fled Kiev, they they planted uh, demolitions in in the buildings so that when the German army came in, they actually set them off remotely, which was the first time in history that it happened, set them off remotely and blew up many of the buildings, most of the buildings on Krushatik Street. So they've been rebuilt in a, a post-World War II Stalinist architecture, but very impressive, large buildings. And like I said, it's a shopping area and a very uh, a common walk thoroughfare. I mean, of course, cars are, are traveling on the street, but this is a place where many people walk and shop and, and eat outdoors and things of that nature. When I, when I arrived there in 2014, it had been taken over, closed down. Uh, the streets had been closed down by this tent city 
that was created by protesters. Uh, when I say tent city, I mean makeshift barricades, tires piled up to where no cars could travel through, uh, wood pallets used for barricades around uh, little compounds with tents in the middle of them, makeshift guard towers. Uh, one man was sitting there uh, sharpening a spear when we went by. Uh, they, this, these guys were there to stay. They were protesting the government. At the time, there was a real push for uh, the Ukrainian, Ukrainians to move toward, and it was a very popular uh, push by the citizens, citizenry, that they would push to a better relationship with the European Union and pulling more away from uh, Russia. Well, when things weren't going quick enough, uh, fast enough for the, the, the citizens, um, President Yana, Yanukovych became very, very unpopular. And these protests began to erupt. And then they became, like I said, very permanent. Uh, they were tenting, they were, they were, they were staying until something changed. Um, and then uh, it got violent. Uh, two, actually, two weeks after I left after having viewed these uh, tent cities and, and all of the, uh, the protests, uh, organized protests, loudspeakers, you know, all the, all the things that happen in a protest, um, I left, but the Euromaidan Euro uh, re revolution really uh, got violent. Uh, when I say Euro Maiden, that is named after Maidan Square, which is on Krushatik Street. And it got violent in the form of the, the, uh, the government and some, well, maybe we'll never know uh, who, who was responsible for some of the sniper uh, attacks, but it was believed to be government forces shooting on the citizens. And 130 people died in these protests. 18 of them were, were uh, Ukrainian police who were, who were trying to squelch the protests, but the rest were citizens who were taking part. And many of them were shot, which were b believed by the, uh, by the government itself. Which, so it, when, when, as this protest continued, um, it, was, it got to the point where President Yanukovych believed that he would not survive it, and he fled to Russia. And a new government was formed, uh, constitutional amendments that had been removed by uh, Yanukovych were, were then restored, and people believed now there was hope for real change, for real uh, for, to get rid of the corruption, and for a reform to happen in Ukraine. But unfortunately, Ukraine's troubles weren't over. In fact, they probably had just had just begun. Because what happens when there is power struggles in a country, what happens when there are vacuums in power and, and, and financial uh, collapse or calamity, you know, mixed in with that, is it's a real opportunity for war. And what you have in the eastern portion of Ukraine are Russian separatists, those who are sympathetic to Russia, who would prefer to be under Russian rule like they were during the Soviet days, and uh, they didn't need much instigating, uh, which they did get from Putin and his men. Uh, troops were sent in, uh, sometimes quietly, secretly, to infiltrate the, the Russian separatist uh, uh, sentiments that were already there and to rise up uh, trouble. And violence began. War broke out in the eastern region of Ukraine, the border between Russia and Ukraine called the Donbass region, with major cities like Donetsk and Lugansk.
uh, this, this created uh, obvious challenges uh, for, for the people of Ukraine, you know, first of all, uh, people were dying. Many soldiers were dying. Civilians were dying. And it also created many challenges for us because now Jewish people were becoming refugees and we had to get them out. Our drivers, our representatives were driving across these makeshift borders from Ukraine proper into this, this region that had been uh, at the time, they were fighting to take over. The Russian separatists were trying to take the Donbass region, and who knows how much more if they were allowed. Uh, we were driving into that region with these vans and finding, helping Jewish people who had had their homes destroyed, had nothing left. Um, they left with the shirts on their back. And, you know, our drivers uh, were detained uh, on both sides of the border by each side to, trying to figure out what they were doing. Uh, the vans came under fire, uh, bullet fire, uh, you know, small arms and, and I imagine uh, long, long guns, uh, but they were, they were shot at. And um, they, they, fortunately, no one was hit. This, this went on uh, for a number of years, our drivers going in and out of this war zone. And um, we're, we're going to have to, uh, now we were forced to a position to take care of these Jewish people that were coming out. And so uh, wars going on, refugees are coming out, and we're, we felt totally responsible for the Jewish people that we were pulling out. What would we do? Uh, we ended up renting a fish camp along the Dnieper River, and we clothed and fed and, and um, you know, uh, housed the, the Jewish people for, for months at a time while we were helping them through the Aliyah process. There was one woman that I met there uh, one year, and she was still there the following year because her process was taking so long. Um, so we, we kept people there for the longest period of time. This, I believe, was truly the, uh, the you know, the, helping the least of these uh, situations. You know, when we look at Matthew 25, and Yeshua says about taking what you do to the least of these, my brethren, uh, this was really what was going on here because they had nothing. In fact, I remember visiting the camp, uh, and when one of the refugees, one of the women, knew, found out that I had come from the United States, she came to me and through the interpreter started to tell me of uh, these things. Her tears running down her face, she said, we lost everything. We lost everything we owned. We had no hope. We thought life was over. And then Ezra gave us new hope. I mean, isn't that what, what it's all about? They went from hopelessness to new hope. We, we kept her safe and we then was, was able to get her home to Israel where could she, she could start and her and her family could start a new life. That's what it's all about. And one, thing that, one of the things that she said that I will never forget, and I have to share with you, no matter what country you are watching from today, she said to me, we were without hope, and I can't believe that there are people in other countries that care enough about us to help us out. And, and as I said, with tears running down her face, and I gave her a hug, and, and the gratitude 
that she was expressing. I want to share that with you today because if you're, if you're an Ezra International donor, these are the type of things that you're accomplishing. This is, these are the people you are helping. So God bless you and thank you for that. And uh, with that, I think we'll pause right here for a commercial break and we'll be right back. On the 26th day of September, 1941, the following order was posted. All Yids of the city of Kiev and its vicinity must appear on Monday, September 29th by eight o'clock in the morning. Bring documents, money and valuables, and also warm clothing, linen, etc. Any Yid who does not follow this order and are found elsewhere will be shot. September 29th and 30th of 1941 marked one of the largest massacres of Jewish people in the history of the Holocaust. Kiev Ukraine Jews were ordered to report and believed that they were going to be relocated, yet they were stripped of their belongings and then of their clothing. They were marched into a ravine 150 meters long, 30 meters wide, and 15 meters deep. Most victims could not have known what was happening until it was too late. By the time they heard the machine gun fire, there was no chance of escape. Over 33,000 Jewish people were massacred at Baba Yar. Nearly 80 years later, Ezra International remembers the tragedy at Baba Yar in Kiev, Ukraine. Anya was saved by her mother, who gave her fake documents to escape just before the massacre, and Ezra International helped Anya finally make Aliyah to Israel. You can help us return the poorest of the poor Jewish people to their biblical homeland. Only $30 per month for a year can make the dream of Aliyah a reality for one Jewish person. Call the number below or go to ezrainternational.org and stand with us as we say, never again. Okay, before the break, I was telling you about uh, our refugees in the, in the fish camp that we've been helping out. Um, also, along that same period of time, uh, just at the outbreak of the war, um, what happened first, if, I remember, if my memory serves me correctly, is that Russia, without a shot, occupied and overtook the Crimean Peninsula. And the Crimean Peninsula that belonged to Ukraine went from Ukrainian to Russian overnight. And what challenges does that create for us? Well, many of the people we had been helping in that region, in the, in the peninsula, had Ukrainian passports and their, their process to make Aliyah was to go out through Ukraine. Overnight, they became Russian citizens. Well, thank God we work in both Russia and Ukraine. We were able to get them new passports, Russian passports, and get them out through Russia. Um, one of the beauties of working in more than, than one country, especially when those two countries are at war. Um, but this, this, this actually happened. That was one of our challenges, but thank God we were able to uh, overcome that as well. Now, closed borders, uh, another challenge today, and I'll come back to um, the situation in Ukraine, but 
one of the reasons why it's an even bigger issue today is because of COVID-19. Uh, we work in one country where um, I can't share um, where that is because we're unofficially helping people there and getting them out through into another country um, because we, we can work in that country, but uh, the borders are closed. So now we can't get in and out and help. Um, so this is a real challenge. So one of our prayer points is that, you know, soon the borders would reopen. Now, the Donbass region that I spoke to you about um, because of the Ukraine war, uh, that border that we used to drive across, the one I told you that we even came under uh, uh, gunfire, um, it's closed now. The Russian separatists have taken the region uh, and, and uh Ukraine doesn't feel it's safe to keep that border open. So how do we then now help the remaining Jewish population get out of that region from cities like Donetsk and Lugansk? Well, they've been creative and they found a way. Uh, now they're driving across the Russian border. They head east instead of west, go across the Russian border, drive through Russia, and then come through another legal border crossing outside of the Donbass region. And then they have to drive to the airport and, and get the, the Jewish people home. So it causes many more hours, many more miles or kilometers, if you will. And, uh, but yet they do it, they're getting it done, it's happening. So just another uh, challenge that uh, thank God we've been able to overcome. Um, as I told you, uh, we had the fish camp and, and we had many refugees uh, stay there. Um, I want to share with you some of the, uh, the things that were said when I interviewed these refugees, uh, refugees after they made it back to Israel. After we kept them there and cared for them and they finally made it home to Israel, I had an opportunity to go see how they were doing. And I interviewed them and then the biggest challenges that they were facing was learning Hebrew. Um, but otherwise, they were doing pretty well. But each one of them, I asked uh, the same question. Were you planning to make Aliyah before the war? And every one of them said no. And this is why I talk about the push factor. Because not one of these people had planned to make Aliyah. They, they, they'd grown up in Ukraine. They had family there. Everything they knew was in Ukraine. But now the war comes along and changes everything. See, this is, the, again, I think hopefully you're, you're, get, you, you're seeing why I say there's push factors because it changes something. It may not be for religious reasons or spiritual reasons, but they go and God will do the rest once they're, they're, they're at home in Israel. He'll reveal himself to them. That's, that's how it works. Thank God for that. Um, one other war story that I'll share quickly. If you remember, if you're a regular uh, viewer of this program, you've seen the commercial with a woman we'll call Anya again. Uh, she was a Holocaust survivor who had to change, hide her identity during the war. Her, her family was home. Her father was off at work. He found out what was happening in Ukraine, that the Nazis were, uh, were ki killing the Jews, and he got word back to his family. That was the last thing they heard from him. They never saw him or heard from him again. But thank God he got that word back to them. Uh, the, this woman's mother 
was able to procure documents that hid their identities. They became Gentiles. They had documents that gave them Gentile names. She said, forget your Jewish name. This is your new name. Live by it now. And that was how they were able to survive the war. Well, now comes 2018 or 2019, whenever it was that I, I met her. I think it was about 2018. And um, I hear her story. Uh, and she, has, she wants to go home to Israel. We had to procure her documents. We had to go to the archives and prove her Jewishness because she'd been living under a Gentile name all those years. That's, that's the challenge, and that's where Ezra International shines, as the commercial said. Um, and I just wanted to elaborate on that story a little bit because she, this, this was a, uh, a miraculous thing in my mind to be able to help a Holocaust survivor get home to Israel finally. Um, speaking once again of civil unrest, we're watching the situation in um, Belarus very, clear, very carefully because um, everything that I just told you about what happened in Ukraine, about the protests and then war and the challenges that we face there, um, we're seeing a mirror of that now in Belarus. As if, you, if you remember, uh, I shared with you the fact that um, Alexander Lukashenko uh, won what was believed to be a corrupt election where he claimed to get 80% of the vote. Um, you know, a popular candidate in any country getting 80% of the vote is pretty unheard of, but a very unpopular candidate like him, uh, we know that this is, is not the case. And so there's been a, um, uh, the opposition leader has threatened a walkout, a mass labor strike in Belarus, and they've given him till October 25th, 2020, which at the time of this filming is about 11 days from now. And so uh, we're going to watch this very closely. We, we're watching this with a lot of interest because if, if these protests turn violent like they did in Ukraine, the situation could get very ugly in Belarus uh, very soon. Maybe, maybe by the time you watch this, um, that will be the case. Uh, we don't know. Another area of prayer for all of us. Um, another problem that we're having today, uh, this one is largely based on COVID. Um, some of it is based on the fact of budgeting constraints, but the consul generals are not coming to the countries on a regular basis. Some are only coming once or uh, every three to four months. Um, this is causing great uh, long lines, long queues of waiting Jewish people, waiting Jewish families that want to get home. And they, they're getting frustrated and, and impatient because they can't get in their consular visits. The entire family must go to these consular visits. They have to be interviewed. They have to have all their paperwork uh, in, in order. And if the consul general does not come, they can't get these meetings in. So we have, we've been helping, uh, you know, in the process uh, with, with um, you know, this long wait. But we've got waits in Russia currently up to four months, Azerbaijan up to seven months. I mean, these are, these are unheard of delays. And um, 
you know, we're, we're, we're again, we're praying and we're hoping that we can, uh, we can get more, pray for more consular visits, that Israel would send their, their consul generals more often and we can move these lines along because, uh, you know, again, lives are depending on it. Uh, quickly, Transnistria, you may never have heard of Transnistria unless you heard, you watched my episode on um, uh, uh, Moldova. Uh, but here's another situation where the documents in Transnistria, or better, other, otherwise known as the Pridnestrovian Moldovian Republic, and you've probably never heard of either, um, but the situation there is like that of the Donbass region in Ukraine. But in this case, uh, people are living their lives recognized by Moldova uh, 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 but as Russian citizens, but really no other country recognizes that. In fact, so when they take their, their documents, their driver's license, their marriage certificates, or their diplomas, uh, birth certificates, they, have, they, they are not recognized anywhere in any country other than Moldova. And Moldova requires them to come into Moldova and update them, legalize them. And every time they do that, it costs money. And so to get those Jewish people out of Transnistria home to Israel is costing a lot more money, a lot more visits, and we're doing everything we can for them as well. Unfortunately, I'm all out of time. I, 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 I hope I wasn't too rushed, but I'm out of time. I've got to go. But thank you again for watching. I hope this helps you understand uh, the challenges that we face, and there are many more. Um, but this gives you an idea about the, the work on the ground and how the, it's so practical and real, and God is helping us meet those challenges every day. And if you're an Ezra donor, you're helping us meet those challenges every day. God bless you. Thank you. We'll see you next time.